Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Good evening to you guys. What an amazing worship time. Do you know that the times like that just, just affirm to me that Jesus has not left New York State yet? <laughs> because he does show up. The word says that he inhabits the praises of his people. So you are part of that, the fact that you are still here. So thank you for that. Um, he loves you. He loves you. We are in the book of Acts tonight. If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Acts chapter 9. If you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible with you or an app on your mobile device, you can get the attention of one of the ushers and they will drop a Bible off to you as they are moving their way. Let us uh, begin tonight by reading. I want to read to you the passage. We're going to kind of do the last chunk of chapter 9 that we left off with last week. Um, I wanted to go further, but I was kind to you, and I thought, no, I'm going to not do that. (laughs) So let's read. Let's begin in in verse 32 of Acts chapter 9, and then we'll pray and uh, hear what the Lord wants to say tonight. So it says that it came to pass as Peter passed throughout all quarters, that he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy, or sick with the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. Don't laugh. It means the same thing. It means gazelle. And this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom, when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber, an upper room. And for as much as Lida was nigh to Joppa, And the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth. He put them out of the room. And he kneeled down and he prayed and turning him to the body said, Tabitha, Arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, bring before you our hearts uh, alongside your word. And we know, Lord, that. Uh, Your word goes forth out of your mouth and it accomplishes that which you please and it doesn't return until it does. And so we open our hearts, Lord, that the truth of what's here and the, the things that it means might be planted deep within us, Father, that we might realize their meaning for us. We know that you place them in the word, not just as history, but as testimony and as promise and truth. So Lord, would you anoint our hearts, illuminate our eyes Touch your word, Lord, and breathe upon this place tonight that we might receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, we ask, amen. So we're studying the life of Saul of Tarsus, and as you may have noticed, he doesn't appear in our text tonight, and I believe that is uh, by calculation of the Holy Ghost. But we know that the, the man Saul of Tarsus is now born again, and he came out of the spiritual birth canal like a bullet out of a Magnum 57. I mean, the man is alive and the man is on fire. He has the Holy Spirit. His sins have been forgiven. His burden has been taken off of his back. But he also has the remnants of youth. And he also has a little bit of what we would call carnal energy. And so his presence has created some problems, both in Damascus, where he first was when he was saved, and then after that in Jerusalem, where in both places he stirred up enough strife to unsettle the churches and almost get himself killed in both places. 
We know that from our text uh, last week, and if you weren't here, just the verses just before where we picked up tonight, Saul of Tarsus was graciously asked or encouraged to leave Jerusalem and to go home. <laughs> and we're told there that the churches then had rest and were edified and they walked in comfort after he departed. So his presence there was a little unsettling. And the reason for it was because he was a little bit passionate and he was a little bit zealous in what had happened and it didn't fit right in the place where he was. Now Saul left Jerusalem as he was asked and he went to Tarsus as he was asked and then he went to Arabia, as he tells us later on in the book of Galatians, and he went into a season of isolation, a season of silence. And he was in a place that if you've ever been there is very frustrating because he was full of passion and he was full of power and he was full of zeal and he was very fired up, but he was all alone. And God was not giving him a platform for ministry or a place to exercise that which was uh, stirring up inside of him. Now, I wonder what it was like for him after about two years of that. You know, he is in Arabia or he's in Tarsus and God is teaching him, God is deepening him. And, and I think that he still, he knew he had hope. He knew God was going to do something. And, and I'm sure that he thought any day now, this season is going to be over and things are going to start to happen again. And God's going to call me. The phone is going to ring or I'm going to get a, a letter in the mail and they're going to ask me to, to come back to Jerusalem. They need me now. They realize they should have never sent me away. And I wonder what it was like as two years became four years, became five years, and he was still in that place of isolation, still in that place of waiting, wondering, is this really going to happen? And I wonder if his hope is fading along with his zeal. I remember in my own life in the early days, uh, feeling much like Saul, not to compare myself with his greatness, but having the same spirit that was in him, in me. And being in that season where God was teaching me and not really using me, though there were opportunities, I remember that my wife was reading this book uh, by, I think it's Hannah Hermbrand called Hind's Feet on High Places. And it's an allegory about how she was kind of moving towards the king and moving towards her calling in his name and, and, and all these things. And I remember the reading this, this point where she's kind of like climbing this mountain and she can kind of see the peak and she's coming, coming right to it, right over it. And, and I've got this expectation in me because I'm feeling what she's trying to communicate spiritually of this arduous climb. And you're just waiting for God now to like open everything up. And, and, and it's been a hard climb, but here we are. And, and, then, and then she gets to this place and she comes over the ridge and it's a false summit. And she sees that the mountain is just infinitely going upwards in front of her with no end in sight. And I literally took the book and I threw it across the room. And I just said, no, I, I rebuke that. That can't be, no, when does it end? And I wonder if for Saul of Tarsus, as that time of being taught by the Lord extended itself, I wonder what he began to think. I wonder if he began to think to himself, if only I had committed my life to Christ sooner. Because maybe I've sinned myself out of any real usefulness in my persecution of the church and the things that I did, the sins that I committed before I came to Christ. I wonder if I'm just unusable now. I wonder if he thought those things. I did. I wonder if he thought to himself, if only maybe I was just a little bit humbler while I was in Damascus, while I was in Jerusalem. If maybe I hadn't called them stiff-necked circumtards you know, those, those Jewish non-believers. You know, if, if maybe I had just been a little bit more polite, then maybe I wouldn't have been kicked out. And, and this is my fault. Maybe this is just what my life is now. And I just wonder what it was like. But what we know, because we know the end of the story, is that God had Saul in that place for a calculated and purposeful period of time because God was giving him what in the Bible we would call a BSD the backside of the desert degree where he is learning. And the question that we've got to ask is why, why do the people of God need a BSD? Why is Hannah Hermbrand endlessly climbing? 
Why is Saul waiting? Why is Moses for all of those years wandering in the desert? Why is David in the cave of Adullam? Why are these things happening to the people of God? Is, is it just because God said so? Is it just a spiritual rite of passage that everyone, well, you're just going to have to go through it. It's kind of like kindergarten and puberty and high school, and you just have to go through it and everybody just does. Is it paying your dues? Everybody has to just do it and you grunt through it and nobody likes it. Is that what this is about? Is it God just testing and bringing you to the place of submission? Well, okay, well, I say uncle when I finally, is that what this is all about? And I think that God is very individual in the way that he deals with people. And I know that it's different for everyone, but I would, I would say that the answer to those things is that it's a resounding no, that that's not the reason why it's there. And I know that because God is not into rituals and God not into rites, and he deals with people on an individual level. So what was it for Paul? What was it for Saul, the man that we're studying, the man who's going through it here in our text? I know that humanity, as a, as a general rule, will default to following after a cause. I think that that's just something that we do. We kind of, we kind of observe our world and our environment, and we see what's going on, and we kind of take a side in whatever matters in the moment that we're alive on the planet— and then we, we kind of join into whatever cause that is or however we're passionate towards that cause or for a cause. We gravitate towards a cause. I do know that that was absolutely true for Paul, for Saul, because Saul was a man who was passionate for the cause of crucifying Christians. That was his history. He joined the cause to end Christianity. That's what he was all about. But then he was born again, and there was a radical shift, and he went from the cause of crucifying Christians to certifying Christians. And we know that because when we read the passage that was last week, Paul's early days when he was in Damascus and in Jerusalem, he was fighting for a cause. It was a right cause. But you read the text, and what it says is that he preached Christ in the synagogues. That's a good cause. That's a good thing to preach. But there was no converts. It says then again that he proved that this is very Christ. He was sure and certain, and he was dotting his I's and crossing his T's, and he was making his point, and they knew it. It was sound. Then again, in the same passage, it says that he preached in his name, and he spoke boldly in his name. And all of that speaks to the cause of Christ, and it was good and it was right. The problem was there was no converts, and there was no real power in what he did. It was a good cause. He was on the right side of things, but it wasn't effective. And here's why. Because God is not into the cause, and Jesus is not a cause. Do you understand that? And that, In fact, that's the title of the message tonight, is that Jesus is not a cause. Now, I would go on out on a limb to say that because of Paul, his mind, because of where he was at in his life, I would go out on a limb to say that both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, that he was probably more passionate than anybody else that was there. He was also perhaps maybe a better preacher than anyone else that was there. And he was probably more persuasive than anyone else that was there because of his legal mind. And so on the talent scale, the human scale, he was off the charts, you would think, useful. But what we also know is that he had less power because what he was saying, what he was proving, what he was affirming wasn't working. It was stirring up strife and it was getting people angry, but no one was coming to faith. He was fighting for a cause, but Jesus is not a cause. Jesus is a cure, okay? Now, I don't think it's an accident that immediately following the departure of Saul from Jerusalem, we have these two little snapshots on the back side of chapter 9 that give us a glimpse of the ministry of Peter in Jerusalem in those days. And there's a sharp contrast between what we see in Peter in these 
these segments, and what we saw in Saul in the early days of his passionate, persuasive, powerful oration. And it is quite a significant contrast. Now, what it illustrates, these two things that we see in Peter's life right here, it illustrates, first of all, what was lacking in Saul, and second of all, what matters to God. And both of those things are absolutely important in terms of God's purpose for our lives. So again, Acts chapter 9, and beginning in verse 32, we have the testimony of the healing of this man, Aeneas. And there's some things that were told uh, that give us the context of what was going on in this situation. It tells us that Peter had left the center of Jerusalem, and he was now making kind of a circle. He was passing through the four quarters of the area. And he finds himself up in this area called Lydda, which is northwest of the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us there that he found a certain man whose name was Aeneas. Okay, now the name Aeneas means or is translated praise. And he was actually named after a Trojan warrior who helped found the Roman Empire. Now, if you know anything about names and the Bible, names are significant to the prayer or hope of a parent for their child when they're born. The name in the Bible is somewhat of a destiny or what is expected or the potential of what is in the life. And so this man, Aeneas, who has a very heroic, very hopeful name, we're told that he has been bedridden for eight years now because he's sick with a palsy. Now, again, the word palsy is a generic term that refers to various types of paralysis. So uh, it's a loss of control of something. We understand that in the modern uh, language. You've heard of Bell's palsy. I've had that before from Lyme disease, where I had a paralysis on one half of my face, and it was ridiculously embarrassing for three weeks to walk around and just have no use whatsoever. There was a loss of control of one side. You've heard of cerebral palsy. And that's where something happens in the brain and some of the controls are lost and it has various effects within the body depending on which part of the brain is affected by this particular palsy, okay? So there's something missing in this man. Now, we know that Peter found him and Peter says to this man, he says, Jesus Christ makes you whole. And I love the wording. I love the way. In fact, whenever you read about the healings in the Bible, whenever Jesus goes around healing people, that's always the word that's used. Sometimes it uses the word healed, but more often it uses the word made whole. And it, and it literally means that something is missing. And it could be something that was missing from birth. In this case, we know that it, it's not. It's, it's something that happened later. It was from eight years that he's been in this position but it's something that broke along the way, and now it's going to be restored. The man is made whole, and we know that the source of the healing, the source of his, his, his uh, restoration is Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ makes you whole, and the man is not only made whole through Jesus, but the result of it is that everyone in the whole area of Lydda and Saren, these towns that were conjoining that were there, everyone who heard this testimony and saw it, it uses the word saw, so they were eyewitnesses of what took place in this man's life, it says that they all turned to the Lord. They didn't just give heed to God. They didn't just acknowledge it, but literally there was an action where it changed the trajectory and the direction of their life from the way they were going to where now they're going toward the Lord because of what happened in this man's life. Something happened to him. The power to cure this man equaled the power to convince the rest of those that lived around them that Jesus was, in fact, the answer. Now, I, I'm reading a book uh, called The Genius of Jesus. And it's a very interesting book because it, it's kind of like asking the question almost from a secular perspective, but it's written by a Christian, is that if you were to just look at Jesus from a human standpoint, was he actually what we would classify a genius? Okay, and, and, and kind of like where he, he's 
going with it or where it goes is that it wasn't so much that it's genius as much as it was completeness, that Jesus was complete. He was, he is what man was intended to be from the beginning. But in the book, in the early part of it, he makes the case that every human being is born with some level of genius. And his premise for that is that we are all made in the image of God. Now we're fallen, we're broken in this sinful world, we understand that. But in that we were made in his image and that we bear his image, there is in every one of us some form of genius. And he cites this study where there were a hundred children that were classified in their, you know, uh, respective society as geniuses. So they were five and six years old, and they were separated out as these hundred kids are actually classified as genius. And then they followed these kids for the next five years, and they retested them again when they were nine, 10, and 11 years old in that era. And what they found is that only 10 of the original 100 were still classified as geniuses. And so he makes the point that as we get older, we kind of lose intelligence in a sense, that we actually, it's not that we are un, less educated, it's that we just have less capacity. We lose something, something happens to us. In a sense, he's saying that the genius that's placed in us by God that we're born with becomes palsied over time. We lose control of it, we lose function of it, we lose sight of it. And you guys know, I don't have to tell you, that this world that we live in right now has a way of palsying what God planted. The things that God has placed in us and that he has for us become crippled by the things we experience and the things that happen to us in this world. There are other palsies than just physical palsies. There are purpose palsies. Purpose palsy happens when well-intended parents see a child who's passionate about the arts and the alarm goes off in the parent's head and says, artists don't live too well. And they say to the child, that's a waste of time. And, and something happens inside the child who's passionate for something, but out of a desire to please their parents and wanting to go the right direction, something that God planted inside can die. There's growth palsies, not physical growth, but mental and spiritual growth palsies that can happen when leaders, whether they be parents or educators or just people that have influence in other people's lives, when they use guilt and fear to get obedience. Guilt and fear are very powerful tools, and you can use them in the life of a person to get them to submit and to control them and get them to do what you want. The problem is those things are extremely crippling and there's a palsy that comes in. And when you can't get rid of guilt and fear, it stops you from growing. It stops you from developing as a human and you'll literally shut down. You'll stop because of it. There are risk palsies. Risk palsy happens when you have a failure or a setback in your life that was unexpected and it pushes you into safety mode, whereas now where before you were going full force, full bore, and you wanted to grab life by the horns, you, you had a setback, something negative happened, and now you pull back and say, that hurt. I don't know if I want to do that anymore. I remember one of my daughters, amazing basketball player, and I remember when she first started out, she was the shortest player on the team, but she was like Taz. I mean, she was so powerful because she would just get in everywhere and she would steal the ball and, and so aggressive and like, and, and just frustrating to, to the other team because of the way that she would just get in there and do it. And, and she was fearless. And I don't remember, I remember that the moment it happened that someone hit her. I mean, they swatted for the ball, but they swatted her and they sprained either a couple of her fingers or her wrist or something. And I remember seeing what that did to her is that she, for a while, she went into safety mode. You know, she came back and she recovered from it, but, but she wasn't the same feisty anymore. That can happen. You have a, a failure, a setback, and it pushes you into safety mode. You can go palsy. You can have relationship palsy. If you, I, you know, I, I, these things interest me and, and maybe they don't, you don't care, but they help you anyway, so I'll share them, you know, but, um, but, but they tell us that the, the, number, the number one uh, source of, of dopamine or oxytocin naturally, not, you know, 
drugs, but the, the part that your brain actually produces, but the number one source of that in the brain in a young person's life is the relational connection they have with other people. That when, when a person, and it's true for adults too, when a person truly connects with another person on an intimate level that's safe, there is a flood of dopamine. It's the number one thing. And, they, and they've actually come to conclude, those that study these things, that that, that is the most powerful anti-addiction thing that can happen in a person's life, is to have meaningful connections in a safe way with other people. Because they become accustomed to the dopamine, the pleasure sense that comes from connecting with other people, which is what really God intended. You know, we're supposed to connect with each other and connect with God. But what can happen in a young child's life is they can get an accidental fix of dopamine by being exposed to something that they were never intended to be exposed to, something like pornography. And that accidental fix of dopamine or oxytocin that can result from just seeing those things can literally short-circuit their ability to have meaningful relationships. And they can have relational palsy well into their adult years, if not for the rest of their lives, because of some of the things they're exposed to. And that might not be the fault of any other person. It's just something that happens because we live in a world that creates palsies. And so I'm going to go out on a limb right here, and I'm going to say that every single one of us in this room, in some form or another, is palsied. There are things in every one of our lives that are dead, that we've lost control of, that are limp, that aren't working right because of things that have happened to us or things that we've experienced within this world. Now, there are so many prosthetics as well, things that hide the palsies. You know, you don't have... Uh, use of your arm, but you can get a fake arm that works pretty good. And there's a lot of prosthetics in this world too. Success is a prosthetic. You can find success in a certain area, in a certain arena. And when you have success, you can hide the fact that there's something inside that's dying because everything on the outside, you can even hide it from yourself. You're like, well, I'm not doing what I feel like I'm supposed to do, what I was made to do, but I'm doing something that's at least making me a lot of money and everything looks good on the outside. So I'm just going to go with it. I'll drive it like I stole it. Money is a prosthetic. Material things are a prosthetic. It all covers up the fact that there's deadness inside. A job or a career is a prosthetic. There's also a lot of medications, things that can numb, numb me to the realization that there's something dead inside of me. Activity is a, is a medication. I'm just going to stay so busy that I can't stop and think about the fact that I'm not complete. Substitutionary things are, 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 are medication. You know, I'm going to play games... Because that gives me the feeling of accomplishment that I'm not getting from actually accomplishing something that I was made to. And so I'm going to substitute a false experience for what the true experience should be because that helps me feel better about the fact that I'm not whole. Substances are medication. I can literally drink something or swallow something that makes me feel as though everything is whole when in reality, things are not whole, it's a medication. And oftentimes, the prosthetics and the medications make the conditions worst. And most people come to a place by the, end of, by the middle of their adult life somewhere where they don't even know where the prosthetics stop and where the real person begins because it just becomes so confusing. Well, I'm not broken. I'm, I'm okay. Everything's good. Everything looks good. You know, I have a family and all this stuff. And yeah, it's all good. And I don't even know what's fake and what's real anymore because I've just become so palsied. Now, this man in our text, Aeneas, this man ran out of hope eight years ago. And he's in a place now where there's no more covering. There's no more medicating. He is bedridden. He is so crippled in the condition that he is in, and he has tried everything. I'm sure he tried doctors. I'm sure he tried diet. I'm sure he tried meditation. I'm sure he tried PT. He tried yoga. He tried every Sorry, stretching. Let's Christianize it. He tried everything, and nothing worked for this guy, and it slowly drained him of his resources, of his strength, and of his hope. And then he has an encounter with Jesus. And when he has an encounter with Jesus brought to him through the person of Peter, Jesus makes him whole. Not healed, didn't fix, it's not that he fixed his hand, he made him whole. Meaning that when Jesus came into this guy's life, he completed that which had been depleted. 
He put together everything that had been miswired and then rewired and then tampered with seven different ways. And in the moment that Jesus came into this guy, when life came into life, when light that was not comprehended by the darkness came into that darkness and turned the lights on, this man was changed forever from the inside out. And that which was broken was immediately healed and restored to what it was supposed to be. Now, we don't even know what it was or when he lost it. He may not even know when he lost it. We don't know if it was physical or mental because the text doesn't tell us, but it doesn't matter because when Jesus came into his life, it was healed. He became whole. And everything that was connected to that palsy was also healed. This man became a whole person. And the effect of this healing, this salvation, this encounter with Jesus was so dramatic, so effective that it was noticeable and obvious to everyone who saw him. Remember when I said earlier to you that I believe that everyone is palsied and some of you are like, yeah, whatever. He's just trying to make it relatable. You know, no, no, listen, everyone is palsied. I'm going to prove it to you in the text. You know where the proof is in the text? It's the fact that all who saw him turned to the Lord because there was some kind of hope that was triggered in the people that saw the difference in this man. And they might have not even known him before, but they saw a whole person. And when they saw a whole person and then heard how wholeness happened, it caused them to say, I want it. I want it. I want that power in my life the same exact way that he was touched. I want to be touched as well. Listen, it wasn't the fact that a miracle was done that caused these people to turn to the Lord. It was what the miracle was. Because everyone is seeking wholeness. I got kicked out of the bookstore today. You know why. I don't have to tell you why I got kicked out of the bookstore today. But the bookstore was full of people. Do you know why? Because people want wholeness. They're looking for it. They're thirsty for it. They want peace. They want joy. They want their relationships to work. They want their marriages to work. They want to know why they're on the planet. They're educating themselves. They're growing. They're searching. They're grasping for something because everyone feels the fact that they are not whole. And when that which produces wholeness is manifested, everyone notices. Now, for this man, Aeneas, it happened very, very quickly. In that one moment, he was made whole. The process was completed. It doesn't always happen that quickly. You guys know that, right? I mean, I know that because I know I'm not whole. <laughs> I, I am still palsied in a lot of ways, and I'm very aware of that. This man, it happened immediately for the effect of the illustration. But the process whereby wholeness happens is the same and is available to everyone. Okay, what's the process of wholeness? Number one is plain old recognition. All right, look behind the prosthetics, feel behind the self-medication, and realize that you're not whole. Look at it, realize it. Why did Jesus say to the man with the withered hand, stand up in the midst? Why, why did it have to come out? Why did it have to be seen? Because until I'm willing to admit to myself that I'm actually flawed and broken, there's no hope for me to be whole. So the first part is recognition. The second part is reception. And that is once you realize where wholeness comes from and that it's been made available and it's freely gifted in the person of God's son who gave his life on a cross and spilled out his blood to purchase wholeness, it's a receiving of that gift and turning like the men of Lydda and Serendid. It says that they turned to the Lord. It's receiving what he is offering. And then the third part, and this is probably where probably most people don't realize the actual wholeness happening, is the action that's required. What did Peter say to Aeneas? He said, make your bed. Make your bed. Arise and make your bed. Stretch your hand, Jesus said. Stand and walk, Jesus said. Stand and make your bed, Peter said. The, the language is, is very powerful. It actually is make your own bed. It's your bed. You make your own bed. And the idea behind it is that you are not where you're supposed to be right now. This is not the part of your life when you're supposed to be bedridden. 
clean it up, get it ready for when maybe you're old (laughs) and that time of life comes, but this is not the time of life right now when you are to be crippled. Get up. And there was action on the part of this man, Aeneas, to appropriate what was being offered to him and step into what God was offering him. And he did it. And in the action, there was a reaction of healing. And Aeneas' healing ignited hope in all those that saw. Okay? And the people that saw Aeneas intuitively made the connection, if God will do it for him, then why wouldn't God do it for me? And they turned to the Lord. And there is no one that Jesus will not make whole. Jesus is the cure, okay? Now, isn't it interesting that nobody responded to the cause that Paul was so eloquently, persuasively, powerfully making his points, and no one would turn. But when the cure came, when people saw what Jesus does in a life, when they saw the resultant wholeness, when they saw things that had been palsied come back to power, come back to life, once they saw that, they said, that's what I want. What, tell me about this Jesus. Tell me what it means. Tell me what, I don't even care what, what, you know, I was brought up in, what the religion was. This is wholeness. Give it to me. There's some that will say, I get it, palsy, good, but I'm way past palsy. Because the things, the things that, that are, are flawed in me, they're not palsied. They're not like, there's not like this. There's some dead things, okay? I, they were palsied so long ago, they don't even work anymore. They're actually, I, think, I don't even think they're part of me. They're gone. Those, there's things in my life that are just, they're dead now. They're, they're, there's no hope for them. Gone. Callings, purposes, plans, hopes, energy, strength, <laughs> wholeness, that ain't happening. It's dead, dead, dead. Remember that, remember that scene in The Princess Bride when, they, when they, they come to Miracle Max and they're hoping to bring the guy? I know, The Princess Bride, it, it comes up. It's, hey, it's deep sometimes, right? But, <laughs> but, but they bring the dead guy to the miracle worker and they say, can you do anything with this? And he kind of looks at him for a minute and he says, yeah, I can fix this. And they, they said, really? But he's dead. He's like, no, 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 he's only mostly dead. He goes, if he was all dead, then there's nothing you can do. He said, no, there's only one thing you can do. He says, go through his pockets and look for loose change. He goes, but he's mostly dead. There's something we can do with this. Now you're thinking, I got things that are all dead. They're not mostly dead. There's no miracle pill. There's nothing that can happen. It's gone. You say, I am already saved. Most of the things in my life that are palsied were palsied after I was saved. And those are things that I have either done or God has allowed and they are gone now. They are done. This doesn't apply to me. Well, verse 36 through 43, when Peter now is called to the next place, he's not going to touch a palsied sinner, but he's going to touch a dead disciple. She's fully dead. She's not mostly dead. She's all dead. Okay. What does it say in verse 36? It says that there was in Joppa, and the word means beauty. There was a disciple. This was a follower. So this wasn't Aeneas, who was just a palsied man. This is a a woman who had a history with God. She knew Jesus already. We're told that her name was Tabitha or Dorcas, which means gazelle. She was spry. She was beautiful. She was energetic. We're told that she was full of good works and alms, meaning that she gave to the poor, which means that not only was she everything on the outside that was the picture of wholeness in life, but even on the inside, she possessed a beauty and a virtue and a value on the inside. And it tells us that this woman who was spiritually healthy and had a history with God, that she came into a condition where she fell sick, she became sick, And that sickness then resulted in death. Now, there is a difference, okay, between a palsy and a sickness. Because a palsy is when you lose something that you previously had. You lost control. Sickness is when you are infected with something that you previously did not have. You guys understand. You get a virus or you get a bacteria. That is something from the outside that got on the inside and it affected you in such a way that you became ill. And if the illness advances, ultimately you come to the place where you will die. This is an infection, okay? Now, we understand that in a physical context of catching a virus or a bacteria, but it can also happen in a mental 
arena or in a spiritual arena. That you can become mentally ill or you can become spiritually ill. Something gets in. Sometimes there might be a desire that you might have. You see something, there's something that's suggested to you, you're attracted to something, and, it, and, and a desire comes in. And that desire can lead you to actions and pursuits that will make you mentally unhealthy. Sometimes you can become discontent with a situation that you're in. And being discontent can cause you to add things to your life that make you mentally ill. Well, I want to get out of this situation or out of this marriage, or I'd rather have that life than the life that I want. And you become mentally ill because you're obsessing about something that is actually going to destroy your life, but you've believed that it's going to help your life, a disposition. Sometimes it could be something good that comes into your life that brings something bad with it. How many of you in here enjoy pork and pork products, bacon, pork chops, pork loin, right? I mean, we eat these things, but if it is not properly prepared, it can bring with it things into our lives that are not good for us. And that can happen. You could come into some money and you could come by it the right way through hard work and diligence and investment and all the things that even the Bible teaches. And you can come into that, but that can bring something with it. It can bring with it an unhealthy fear of losing it or of spending it. And so you've been infected with something unintentionally that is now crippling. There's something there, okay? You could want to improve the quality of your health. And so you make changes to your diet and to your uh, energy expenditure. You start exercising, and that's a good thing. You start making good changes, but that can bring with it sometimes an obsessiveness that can then turn into an eating disorder or body dysmorphia. And that has something good that brought with it an infection, something that mentally has now gripped you and you can't let go of it. You can't get it out. You could take on an activity and there's nothing wrong with an activity. You may go on a golf course for the first time and be like, hey, I'm really good at this. In fact, that happens to every single person that ever goes on a golf course for the very first time. If you have never golfed before, challenge Tiger Woods to a game of golf and you will win. You will never win again after that ever ever. It's just the rule of, but, but, but I digress. It's an activity, right? But an activity can become, we use the word infectious. Anybody ever have that happen? Where, where you, how many times have we heard it in this church that a good thing can become a, a bad thing, right? It can happen because it can be infectious. It brings with it something that if it gets in, it can affect us in a way that we become sick mentally. And sometimes those things can lead to good things dying within our lives. I've seen callings die. I've seen destinies die. I've seen effective fruitfulness die because of things that got in after the fact and had an effect within people's lives. And sometimes I wonder how many uh, callings have gone unanswered, and how many books have gone unwritten, and how many things have gone uninvented, and how many businesses have not been started, and how many risks have not been taken because of, 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 a, of something that got in, something that created some sickness. Well, Peter is called now to the, to the, to the scene where this woman, Tabitha, had gotten sick, and she died. And then Peter is brought into the nightmare scenario. Verse 37, it came to pass that when she was sick, she died. They brought her into an upper room. They call for Peter. And Peter was there. They sent two men and they desired that he would not delay to come. So Peter arose and he went with them. And when he was come, here it is. Beware any of you that ever feel called to the ministry because you will be in this position at some point along the way. It says that when he was come into the upper chamber and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing him the courts and the garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Essentially what they do is they say there is a dead woman on the other side of that door who is responsible for all of these good things that happened. She is dead. She's all dead. She's completely dead. She's been embalmed already. Can you fix this? I've been there. That is the absolute worst situation that you could ever be in. But that is just part of the ministry sometimes. I have been in the situation where, you know, you get the phone call and you say, hey, could you come? We're, having, we're going through something over here. And so you go at nine o'clock at night to someone's house and the man of the house is laying in a pool of his own vomit 
passed out drunk on the floor and there are holes in the wall and a broken down door and you stand in the midst and they say, can you fix this? And you go, they didn't teach us this in... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it, it goes on. I mean, I've got tons of examples, but I don't have time to give them to you. But Peter is in this situation. And I love the way Peter handles it because Peter doesn't say, which he could. He could be like, well, she's dead. You know, she's dead. She doesn't have a pulse anymore. Like, we could plan a funeral. Do you want me to do the memorial service? I'm in town until Tuesday. You know, we could probably get something together if you wanted, you know. But, but, but that's not what they're asking for. And Peter knows that there's the potential for something infinitely greater than just the planning of a memorial service. Peter, can you fix this? Peter could have said, it's too late if God would have maybe gotten my attention before. Now, verse 40, watch Peter. It says, but Peter put them all out and he kneeled down and he prayed. And turning him to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, when you read this, we read the Bible and we go, okay, this is the miracles of the Bible. And this is Peter. Put yourself in Peter's place in that scene, in that situation. And just think for a minute about the level of having that Peter had to know what was possible and what could be done in the name of Jesus in this setting and in this situation. I, I wonder if while Peter was standing there looking at the things that Dorcas had made and seeing the widows weeping and knowing that, I'm, I wonder if it came into Peter's mind when Jesus was standing on the hillside with 5,000 men and an unnumbered amount of women and children, and they had five loaves and a few fish and Jesus smiled unshaken by that moment and he looked at his disciples and he said, you give them something to eat. You give them something you don't have. You produce something that isn't within your power to give them. And then they watched as they just did what Jesus said. They watched loaves and fishes multiplied to the feeding of that multitude so that there would be 12 basketfuls left over. I wonder if in that moment, Peter, in his mind, it was fresh that he could see Jesus walking on the water and he could recall the words coming out of his own mouth saying, Lord, if that's you, then bid me to come out of the boat and walk with you on the sea. And Jesus said, come. And Peter watched as his feet found solid ground on liquid water as he walked out towards Jesus and then was single-handedly lifted in the moment of his doubt back and then placed in the boat. I wonder if it came to his mind. I wonder if it came to his mind the moment when all night long they had done their absolute best and they'd employed every strategy, every lure, every current, every bit of experience. And by morning they were exhausted and empty and hungry. And Jesus from the shore said, cast your net on the other side. And they, and they hauled in a haul of fish that was so great they needed two boats to call it in. I wonder if he remembered what was there. I, remember if, or I wonder if Peter remembered the moment when they were standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. And this man who had been dead for four days and Jesus knew that he had been dead because Jesus said he's dead. And then standing in front of a tomb of a man who had already been embalmed and the tomb had been sealed, Jesus said, roll away the stone. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth out of the grave wrapped in grave clothes. And I'm sure that Peter remembered the time that it was only Jesus, himself, James, and John. And there was a young girl. Her name wasn't Tabitha, but she was called Talitha, which means young maiden. And everyone was put out of the room as they wept over the death and passing of this young girl. And Jesus took Peter, and he took James and John, and he brought them up, and he said, young girl, Talitha, Kunai, which is to say, young maiden, arise. And he took her by the hand and she rose up and she was strengthened and delivered again into the hand of her parents. And Peter knew that there was power in the name and in the, in the gospel of Jesus and in the word of Jesus that was unknown by anyone else. And Jesus, or Peter, rather, I'm sure he thought, well, if he can do for Aeneas what he did with someone who has a pulse, then could he not do it for this woman who doesn't? And if he can do it for her, then why not for anyone? And so Peter, what did he do? Notice in verse 40, he spoke, listen, 
He spoke to the situation according to the power of God and not according to what the situation declared. See, the situation, from a human standpoint, said, no, she's dead. This is a done deal. You can't do anything about it. She's gone. But the power of God speaks something different, and Peter spoke to the situation according to the power of God and not to what death declared. And I wonder, what gave Peter the faith to know that this would work? And you think about it. You know, in, in Peter's life, what he had seen God do for him. He saw his fear turn into boldness. He'd seen his shame turn into strength. He saw his calling go from the crowing of the rooster to Jesus restoring him and giving him the crown of his position. He knew the authority of the word of God that when Jesus says old things are passed away and that all things become new, that you're not to be conformed or patterned to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind in the way that you think. And Peter himself would later say that God has given to us all things that are needed for life and godliness and that he's not a respecter of persons, which means that he will do what he does for anyone. He had the faith to realize that God can do anything. And so he takes this woman by the hand, he presents her alive again. And the result again is it says that many in that area, it says that they believed in the Lord. They put their faith in Jesus again, not because of the cause, but because of the cure. She came back to life again. And this is the part, understand this, this is the part that Saul is yet lacking. He's gifted, he's anointed, he's zealous, he's passionate, but he doesn't have the context of seeing his palsied, palsies made whole, of the dead things brought back to life again. He will. And he'll come to the place where he does the same things, maybe more things even than Peter. But as of yet, he's in the desert learning wholeness and that resurrection are real. Do you understand that, that every one of us, all of us, are palsied and dead? We come into this life, we come into this faith, infected in this place, but Jesus is the cure. And Jesus died, he rose so that we could be whole. He said that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. That that's his desire. It's what he's given to us. And I ask you tonight, in whatever situation you find yourself in right now, what voice are you listening to? Are you listening to the voice of the situation that says that this is way far too gone? Or you're way too old? Or you've sinned yourself out? Or those things have passed? Or you're just not chosen? You're never going to grow? You're never going to know God the way you want or thought you could. You're never going to achieve. You're never going to be made whole. You're never going to have joy. Your palsy says to you that you can't. You've tried. There's no help. You are what you are. You're never going to change. But what does God say? God says that he has delivered us from this present evil world. God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Meaning that even my old ways, my old habits, my old thought patterns, the old palsies, those things are made new. Jesus would say, I make all things new. And he would say that we are overcomers. I think of Jesus going to that man that was by the pool of Bethesda. It's in John chapter 5. And he said to that man who had been there for 38 years laying on a bed, he asked him a question. He said, will you be made whole? says, do you want to be made whole? It was a question. And the man began to make every excuse for every practical reason. Well, I don't have any help. No one brings me to the water and everyone's faster than me. And I'm not smart enough to get down there. And I don't have enough relational equity with people for them to help me in the situation. He starts making all these excuses why he can't. And Jesus looked at him and gave him an ultimatum. He said, hey, take up your bed and walk. The power of my word is yours to either act on it and do it, or you can stay in the condition in the situation that you're in. And the man conjured up enough faith in that moment, seeing Jesus in the way that he did, that he obeyed and he did what Jesus said. There was another encounter where a man had a son who was demon-possessed. And if any of you have sons that are demon-possessed, you can relate to this guy. And he came to Jesus and he said, can you fix this? 
And Jesus looked at that man, I'm sure with the calmest of, of looks, the way he always did. And he said, all things are possible to him that believes. And the man looked back at Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I want you to understand tonight that there is nothing that will keep you back from receiving wholeness in Jesus' name except for your unbelief. I, I heard um, a testimony this past week of a man named John Gordon, and uh, he's written a bunch of books and, and um, all this stuff, and he was talking about how he came to faith in Jesus, and uh, he, he wrecked his life, I mean, like, like most people do. His marriage was just on the, the end, and um, mentally he was falling apart, and he was just massively pessimistic, and his wife said, you are so negative that I need to get away from you, you know, and he's just in this horrible place. And um, he actually went to a Buddhist energy healer, and a Buddhist energy healer led this guy to Christ. And here's how it happened. Because, I mean, Buddhism is so not Christian. It's just like, it's atheistic. It's like, you know, you reach it by enlightenment, the whole thing. But he goes to this thing looking for help, and, this, and somehow Jesus comes up. And, and the Buddhist energy healer says to this guy, he says, oh, Jesus is the Christian God. Jesus is like the cheat code for, um, for being fixed. See, the, the Christians believe, you know, that you just put your faith in Jesus and the fact that he died and rose, and you believe in that for yourself, and Jesus comes into your life, and he just fixes you, and you're complete, and you're whole. And he goes, that's the easy way. He goes, I understand all that, but I want to do it the hard way. I want to do it myself. That's what the, this guy said to him. And so he's like, so I work towards enlightenment, and I go down this road. So the guy leaves, and as he's walking out, he's going like, I want, I'll do it the easy way. Like, I'm okay with that. And he gave his life to Christ right then and there. He said, Jesus, if you're real, come into my life because I believe I want you to come into my life. And Jesus came into his life and he said, for the very first time, peace flooded into his heart. And that very moment, he was filled with peace. And then God began to renew his mind, his marriage, his life. And now he goes around and he travels around to different companies and he, 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 he talks to them about how important it is to be positive, and he makes more money in one speech than his parents made an entire year. And, that, and, you know, and, he, and he doesn't do that in the name of Jesus. He's not a preacher, but he does it as a Christian and someone whose God has put his life back together. And see, it's that point of do you believe? Are you going to live your life listening to the voices of your palsies, of your cripplings, of your past experiences, of the sicknesses that have gotten inside and said, no, you're stuck here. You can't get out of this. This is what you are now. You made your bed. You're going to sleep in it. That's it. Or are you going to listen to the voice of God? And the voice of God says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, that old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. How many things? All things become new. Paul would write later on and he would say, do not be conformed to this world. Don't listen to the voices of it, but be renewed in your mind by the transforming. Do you understand the difference between transforming and conforming? Transforming is a supernatural work of God's spirit as you and I take hold of what he said he's gonna do and we say, I'm gonna believe what he said, not what I think or what anybody else says. And I don't need anybody's help. I don't need anybody's advice. I'm gonna listen to Jesus and I'm gonna walk in that power. And when that happens, old forms break. Old palsies are healed. Dead things resurrect because the power of Jesus is real. And not only that, but people see it and it's infectious and they say, I might not care about your cause, but I definitely care about your cure. And if you can lead me to the one that can transform a life, I want that as well. And that is why Paul is in the desert for the years that he is, because he is learning to break away from the old to embrace the new, and to let Jesus make him whole so that he has something to give more than just persuasive words. And that's what he is seeking to do with all of us. And I ask you this question, how long is it going to take? Will you be made whole? Will you be delivered? Will you believe that God loves you? Will you believe 
that he has a plan and that you don't have to fear and walk in crippling anxiety that everything's going to fall apart? Will you believe what he says about a future and a hope, about keeping you as the apple of his eye, of bringing you through a storm when 10,000 are falling at your right hand and 1,000 at your left, but it won't come nigh unto you? And will you walk and live according to that or according to what else? Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, and, and we, we all come so incredibly short of just the simple act of believing to receive. Thank you for the demonstration. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony. And tonight in this room, Lord, we lay our palsies before you. We recognize, Lord, that there's things in us that have died. There's genius in all of us that has been emptied out. There's risks that we've failed to take. Desires that we've shifted by the wayside. Relationships that we've ruined and broken. Thought patterns that have become unhealthy and toxic. And unbelief has been mixed with belief in such crazy ways in us. And tonight, Lord, we would be made whole. And so we're asking you, Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, by the power of your name, that you might speak to us tonight and that we might hear a word in our ears saying, take up your bed. Jesus Christ makes you whole. Let it be so, God. Let it be so. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.